But let's pray, and then we'll dive into our time today. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness in our lives. We thank you that you are the the God who pursues us. And Lord, I pray today that as we study your word, that you would move and work by your Holy Spirit in this place. I pray, God, that that you would do a work in us, that, that we would be different when we leave this place than when we came in. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the power that it has to transform us and to speak to us. And so we give you this time today, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you for a minute about elevator etiquette. Have you ever wondered why when people get into an elevator, everyone stops talking and just looks forward? You're like, no, we've never wondered that, Pastor Rob. (laughs) I've been tempted a couple times when I'm the last person in to just stand and face everybody and stare at them. Or maybe even just to begin talking to them about Jesus. I mean, it's a captive audience, right? They're like like trapped there in, in that elevator. But elevator protocol seems to be that you get in an elevator, you stop talking, you put your hands down to your side, and you look forward. Why is that? Well, maybe this is the reason why. There's a law on the books in the state of New York that says it is illegal in New York to speak to a person while riding in an elevator. It says you must fold your hands while looking forward. So maybe that's why. (laughs) You know, there are some crazy laws in the books in this country some bizarre ones. For instance, in Texas, it is against the law to sell your eyeballs. <laughs> Why would anybody want to do that? Right? In the state of Washington, you can be fined and arrested for harassing Bigfoot. <laughs> so apparently they believe in Bigfoot in Washington. In Alabama, bear wrestling is prohibited. Do they have pet bears there or something? I mean, come on. Here's one more. In Ohio, policemen are allowed to bite a dog if they think it will calm the dog down. (laughs) Crazy laws. But we know that laws are necessary in any well-ordered society. It's one of the great stabilizing influences amongst people and nations. But if laws are not grounded in good principles, they can become either ludicrous or counterproductive. Well, we've seen here in our study in the book of Esther, a law that was downright evil that was written into the books. You you recall that the king wrote into law the request that was put forward by his prime minister, a guy by the name of Haman, that in 11 months, all 3 million Jews living throughout all the provinces of Persia, modern-day Iran, would be eradicated, that they would be killed. And we noted that in Persia, in that country at that particular time, when a law was written into the books and confirmed by the king, it could not be reversed. And even though we saw last week that the hatred of Haman was exposed and he ended up being executed, this law 
that had been written into the books that all three million Jews throughout all the provinces on this particular day, happening 11 months into the future, that all three million Jews were going to be killed. It could not be changed. The only thing that could happen is this law could be superseded by another law. And that's what we see takes place here in chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Esther, that the king is going to give his queen Esther and his new prime minister Mordecai, he's going to give them the permission to write a new law that is going to counteract the old law. And as we work our way through these two chapters today, we're going to be reminded of three key principles in the Christian life. It's been said that every New Testament principle is seen in the Old Testament in the way of a picture. And we're going to see that today. These three principles, as we work our way through these two chapters, that number one, the law of of the spirit of life in Christ sets us free from the law of sin and death. The second principle we're going to look at is that in Christ, we're not just given freedom, but we're also given power. And then the third uh, thing that we're, principle we're going to look at is that when the spirit is in control, the flesh is defeated. Let's pick it up. Chapter 8, verse 3. It says, Now Esther spoke again to the king and fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract, key word there, the evil of Haman, Haman the Agagite, and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. And so Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the, the, the things seem right, to the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people, or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? So Esther is asking the king, can something be done? to counteract this edict that has been put forth by Haman. Verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hands on the Jews. So you yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So the the king is going to give them, he gives them here the, the permission to write a new law that is going to counteract the old law of Haman, and they get busy in doing that. We pick it up in verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time, and in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, in the 23rd day, it was... And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, Ethiopia, the 127 provinces in all to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by the couriers on horseback, riding on 
on royal horses bred from swift steeds. And this is what he wrote. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions on one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And a copy of the document was issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So here's what happened. The king can't change the edict that Haman had him write into law, that all the Jews would be annihilated. He can't change that, but he can approve of a new edict, a new law that would counteract the old one. So the new edict that Mordecai wrote declared that on that day that had been set forth by Haman, that the Jews were to be annihilated, that they now had the right, the right given to them by the king to bear arms and defend themselves. So this new law was written into the Persian books that would supersede the old law, giving the Jewish people the right to defend themselves. Now, this idea of one law being written that would supersede a previous law is a beautiful picture of what happens to us in Christ. And this is our first principle, that the law of the spirit of life in Christ sets us free from the law of sin and death. Romans chapter 8, verse 2. You see, the law of sin and death said this, keep the commandments of God. And if you can do that, God will declare you as being righteous. You will be right with God. But if you fail to keep his commandments, then you will be labeled a sinner. And this is what the law said concerning sinners. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death, that the soul that sins will surely die. And we all know the story. Adam, the first man the first human being. He broke the law of God. He rebelled against God. And when he did that, the Bible tells us that sin entered into the human race. That all of us, every human being after Adam was born into this curse where our natural tendency, this sin nature inside of us, our natural tendency would be to break the law of God, to go against the law of God. It was inbred in us. We talked about this on Wednesday night, that we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. It's inbred in our very DNA as human beings. And so that was the law, the edict, that we were born under this curse, that we were born with a death sentence on our heads. In the same way that any child that was born into a Jewish family in that 11-month time, think about this, some couple there in Persia, some Jewish couple has a baby, that baby comes into the world with a death sentence on its head. 
that in 11 months that child would be, because it was simply because it was Jewish, it would be put to death. Well, all of us, we were born with a death sentence on our heads. And then when we sinned, just proving that we were sinners, our sin condemned us. That was the law of sin and death, and it could not be altered. Because you see, our God is a just judge. And as a just judge, he can't just excuse sin. In the same way today that, you know, if somebody committed murder and a judge decided, oh, I'm just going to let him off the hook, I'm feeling gracious today, we would say, that's not fair, that's not right, that's not just. You expect a judge to be just, and our God is a just judge, so he can't just excuse sin. But God did do something. God did something to counteract that law, really to supersede that law. In Romans chapter 3, verse 26, it puts it this way, that God would show himself to be just and the justifier of our sins. So here's the question. How can he be just and punish sin and be the justifier, the one who pays the price for our sins and the one who declares that sinners can be forgiven and declared righteous, this is what God did. God sent his beloved son, Jesus, to come to this earth and become a man for the very purpose that he would go to a cross and on that cross, he would pay the price for all the sins of the world, that he would pay the penalty that we deserved. And God, in doing so, would make a way for men and women to be declared righteous, not by keeping the law, but by placing their faith in Jesus. And this second edict, this second law, would supersede the first one. That Jesus would come to this earth and he would give his life a ransom for many, and on the cross, his death on the cross, it would satisfy the righteous requirement of God for the sins of the world. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, any person who would put their faith in Christ could be declared righteous. Listen how Paul put this in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. He says, but now... The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." You see, prior to Calvary, the only way for a man or a woman to be declared righteous in God's eyes was to keep the law. But this was the problem. Nobody could. None of us could. But Paul says, and I love the way he phrases this, there is a righteousness of God that is apart from the law. And it's found through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so that God in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 would say that we are justified, we are declared righteous by putting our faith in Jesus. So now, as believers, we can live under a new law, the law of grace, that God did for us 
what we could not do for ourselves. So in the same way that the new law that Mordecai wrote into being superseded, the law of Haman uh, had put forth, the law of the spirit of life in Christ sets us free from the law of sin and death. That's the first principle. Let's get back to our story, but let's pick it up in verse 14. It says, now the couriers rode on royal horses and went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. Notice this. The couriers go out on horseback with this news, and it says they went out, hastened and pressed. The idea is they went out quickly and with a sense of urgency because they knew we have good news to share. Now, if you recall back, In chapter 3, when Haman put forth that decree that all the Jews would be annihilated, right at the end of chapter 3, remember this? It says that all of the people in Persia were perplexed. Why? They love the Jewish people. They, they didn't want, they were their friends. They were their co-workers. They didn't want to see them annihilate. So the whole nation, all the, all the people in all the provinces of Persia, it says they were perplexed by this. You see, the number of people in the kingdom who were anti-Semitic was a very, very small number. In fact, we'll see that when we get to chapter 9. So these couriers went out quickly and with a sense of urgency to get this news out that there was hope for their Jewish friends. And I say to us, precious church, we have even better news to share today than the news that they were sending out. You see, we know how the people that, that we love people who are in our family and people that that we work with and people who are our our neighbors that, that we love, but who, if they don't know Jesus, they right now are living in a state of being damned for all of eternity because of their sin. But we have good news to share that there is hope and life and salvation in Jesus because of the finished work of Christ upon the cross. And church, I think that we should go out with a similar sense of urgency and haste in sharing the good news that there is hope in Jesus. Now, I want you to also notice the effect that this new declaration had on the Jewish people that were living in Persia. We'll pick it up, verse 15. It says, so Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And every, in every province and, and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness and a feast and a holiday. And then many of the people of the land became Jews because of fear of the Jews fell upon them. Listen, here's what I want you to catch. The presence of Mordecai being in power changed everything for the Jewish people. Their sorrow was turned into gladness. Their mourning was turned into joy. Why? Because they had an advocate now in power. They had an advocate who had the ear of the king who was standing in the gap. And again, church, I say this, we have an even better advocate in Jesus. 
who the Bible says ever lives to make intercession for us, that he stands before the Father interceding on our behalf. And so, guys, we have great news to be shared. Now, here's the thing, though. As we come to chapter 9, we see that the day of doom arrives. Notice. Now, in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. So this is the decree of Haman. It was written into law that on this particular day, it was going to happen. And on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. So this anticipated and dreadful day occurred when the edict of the command of Haman would come forth and those, those in the province of, uh, of Persia who were harboring anti-Semitic sentiments, though a small group, they were eager and they were ready for that day. They wanted to do away with these Jewish people. They wanted to overcome them and overpower them. But the opposite happened. They were overpowered by the Jews. The tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand. And notice that it tells us how it happened. It says, verse 2, The Jews gathered together in their, their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought to harm them, and no one could withstand them because of fear of them fell upon the people. And all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and with slaughter and destruction and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And then it mentions 10 names in verse 10. I'm not going to try to even pronounce these, but in verse 10, it tells us that these were the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. They killed, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. Now, I want you to look back at verse 4 and see something very important that has application to us. At the very end of it, it says that Mordecai became increasingly prominent. The idea there is he grew more, more and more powerful. And so we see in this that the Jewish people living in Persia at that time, they not only had freedom, but they had power. They were now fighting in the consciousness that this man of power... The prime minister was on their side and that the right up to the very throne itself, that they had the authority now to fight and defend themselves. So they fought in dependence upon that power. Now, what's interesting about the book of Esther is that Mordecai in the book of Esther is actually a type of the Holy Spirit. Let me explain. We read of Mordecai in the book of Esther teaching and guiding Esther. Remember, he adopted her after her parents died. He was her cousin. He adopted her, took her in as his own daughter. And he taught her in the ways of Israel. He guided her. And that's what the Bible says the Holy Spirit does with us, that he teaches us and he guides us. We see then later in the story where Mordecai is 
urging Esther. He's telling her, after she becomes queen, you've been put in this position. For such a time as this, you need to do something. And in the very same way, the Holy Spirit urges us and convicts us of our sin. And now we see that the people of Israel, the Jewish people in Persia, are being empowered now by the presence and the position of Mordecai there in the king's palace. And in the very same way, the Bible says that that's the work of the Holy Spirit that he does in our life, that he empowers us. And this brings us to the second principle is we're not just given freedom in Christ, but we are given power. I saw a picture this week that absolutely blew my mind. It was a picture of a piece of wood that was literally driven into a metal pole. Right, right into the metal pole. It happened during a tornado in Oklahoma. That this force of the tornado picks up this piece of wood and literally drives it into a very thick metal pole. Now, if I were to take a piece of wood and a hammer and give it to one of the, the biggest, strongest dudes in our church and said, okay, I want you to take this hammer and drive this piece of wood into that metal pole, that guy would be like, that's impossible. And he'd be right. But it happened. How did it happen? The force of that mighty wind was able to do the impossible. Well, the Holy Spirit in the Bible is likened to a wind. And the Holy Spirit in our lives allows us to do the impossible. As he empowers us to live for Jesus. He empowers us to stand in the face of opposition. It's the Holy Spirit in our lives who empowers us to be the husbands or the wives or the parents or the followers of Jesus Christ that God has called us to be. But our need, church, is to learn to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit for our lives. As Jesus would say in John chapter 15, we need to believe this. I think oftentimes we don't, but he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that imparts to us this new life and this new power in Jesus. Again, Paul the apostle in Romans 8 put it this way. He said in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And then in verse 37, he'll say this, that we are now more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this is what we see here in this story. The Jews in Persia fought in the realization that the man who was the prime minister, who was under the king but on the throne and was behind the throne, is the one from whom their power came. And so they fought with a sense of power because they knew that the one on the throne was on their side. And guys, we as believers are called to do the same. To realize that the very power of the resurrected Savior, Jesus, is available to us. And this is why Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And so their story 
can also be our story. They weren't just given freedom, but they were also given power. Now, I also want you to notice in verse 10, it says that they didn't take the plunder. And this is interesting because they were told in the law that was written that they could take the plunder, but it says they didn't do that. They defended themselves, but they went no further. They protected themselves, but they didn't carry it to the extreme. And this was all the Jews throughout the whole nation. How did that happen? I think the only answer is it was an act of God. It was an act of God. It was a move of the Holy Spirit because you know what Paul said in the book of Galatians that the fruit of the Holy Spirit, one of the the aspects of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. And that's what we see is happening here. Just absolutely marvelous, miraculous little side note. Let's pick it up in verse 11. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan the Citadel was brought to the king. And the king said to the queen, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the 10 sons of Haman. So he's like, 500 people. Now, again, anytime there's death of somebody, that's horrible. We hate to see that. But it was going to be 3 million Jews. So this is, you know, pretty uh, small in comparison, 500 men. But then it was asked, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? He says to Esther, it shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. And then Esther said, well, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree and let Haman's 10 sons be hanged on the gallows. So she says, okay, just in case there's some retaliation tomorrow, can can we just extend this a day? And can we have the 10 sons of Haman just put on the gallows? Now, again, we talked about this last week. The gallows was not like the westerns we see people hanging by the neck from a rope. Remember, it was a wall that they impaled them on. And so she was saying, and can, can we just put the 10 sons of Haman, impale them on the wall so that everybody can see, hey, this is what happens to you if you mess with the Jews, all right? Verse 14, so the king commanded this to be done. He's like, good idea. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Shushan, so 300 more, but they did not lay hand to the plunder again. And the remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So 75,000 people in all. Now remember, the massive amount of territory that King Ahasuerus oversaw would be the equivalent of taking two maps of the United States and stacking them one on top of the other. That would be the circumference. We're talking a massive amount of territory. And so in that, 75,000 came against the Jews and they were slaughtered. But here's what I want you to catch. Remember, Haman and his sons were descendants of the Amalekites. And if you were with us, you remember that we noted this, that the Amalekites in the Bible are a type of the flesh. 
And God had commanded King Saul back in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when the Israelites were going into battle against the Amalekites, he said, I want you to utterly destroy them because of what they had done, clear back in the book of Exodus, against the people of God. But the thing was that King Saul didn't follow through on that. And so now we see later on, Hundreds of years later, we see a a descendant of King Saul, this guy Mordecai, is now going to complete this judgment against the Amalekites. And Mordecai, who represents the spirit, when he was in control, Haman and his sons, who represent the flesh, were put to death. And this brings us to our third principle today, that when the spirit is in control, the flesh is defeated. Again, Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Here's what it's teaching us. That the Spirit of Jesus gives us power over the flesh. And this is what I want you to really pay attention to today. You know, for years, as a follower of Jesus, I tried to have victory over my fleshly tendencies in my own strength. But this is what I found. The harder I tried, the more I failed. There were so many times where I would get up and maybe some area in my life, something that I was struggling with, and I would say, today I'm going to do better. Today I'm going to have victory. Today, I'm not going to give in to that. And the harder that I tried, the more that I failed. And on those rare occasions when I did have victory, it was always short-lived. Or in those occasions when I finally had victory over something, it was only to be replaced by something else that I was struggling with. But then I finally realized this, that true victory is not through trying harder, but it's through surrender. And one of my life verses is Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the first beatitude that says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And to be poor in spirit is to realize that you are spiritually destitute. That's what the word poor means. It means destitute. And in New Testament times, it described a beggar, someone who was so bad off that they couldn't take care of themselves. They were so destitute that they did not possess the resources for food or clothing. They were dependent upon the charity of others to survive. But Jesus, when he says this, is not talking about physical poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty. So to be poor in spirit means that you have full recognition in your inner man of your complete inability to meet and address your own spiritual needs. It's a sense of realizing that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you are helpless before God, that there is nothing that you can do in and of yourself to change your spiritual condition as a sinner. 
So to be poor in spirit is the realization that you have no assets of which to commend yourself before God. You have no capital of which to bargain at the throne of judgment. It's having a sense of moral uncleanness before God. Poor in spirit is the realization that I am a sinner. I am doomed. And there's nothing that I can do to change that. There's nothing that I can do to change my standing with God. Try as I may to clean up my act and turn my life around, I'm going to fail. It's been said, if you send a sinner to school, you'll have an educated sinner. If you send a sinner to a psychiatrist, you'll have a well-adjusted sinner. If you send a sinner to rehab, you'll have a sober sinner. If you give a, give sinner, a sinner money, you'll have a wealthy sinner. If you give a sinner religion and have him sign a pledge card and join a church, all you'll have is a religious sinner. But send a sinner repentant of his sins to the cross of Jesus Christ, and you'll have a forgiven sinner. It's a person who comes to that place that realizes, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And then here's the second part. He says, and for theirs, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what God does. When the sinner comes repentant of his sin, God fills up your spiritual bank account. God deposits forgiveness into your spiritual bank account. And you have a right standing with him. He deposits righteousness and he now sees you in the righteousness of Christ. He deposits hope for the future so that you know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. And he deposits grace and power for living. And I just want to say this today. If you're here today and you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, that can, you live in a place today of being under the law of sin and death. But that can change for you today by simply just admitting, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And as you do that, God is going to deposit forgiveness and righteousness and hope and grace and power into your life and you are going to be changed. But listen, friends, it gets better than that. Being poor in spirit is not just the key for salvation. It's also the key for Christian living because, listen, listen, this needs to be the constant state of our heart. Here's what I mean by that. It's realizing Being poor in spirit is realizing your utter need and dependency upon Jesus for everything. Not just for salvation, but to literally be who God has called you to be in every aspect. It's realizing and recognizing, I can't do this on my own. The issue is not trying harder. It's surrender. It's acknowledging, Lord, I don't have what it takes, but I do know that through your grace and your power working in my life, that as I learn to walk in the Spirit, I know that death is going to be defeated. And this is the last part of that verse. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as it relates to salvation, yes, that that speaks of of heaven, going to heaven, but but it's bigger than that. 
Because here's what it means. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What, what Jesus was saying there is that when a Christian comes to that place of recognizing their need of Jesus for everything, that all the resources of our King Jesus suddenly become available to us for kingdom living for living with Jesus. So it's as we come to that place of learning to depend upon the Holy Spirit that we realize that we can have victory over the flesh. And again, Paul would write about this in Romans 8 when he says, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do, for if you live by its dictates, you'll die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are children of God. And that last phrase, those who are led by the Spirit, that word led is such a beautiful word because it describes this picture of a sailboat being driven by the wind. And in those days, the sailboat's like, you know, today, if you are ever out on a sailboat and there's no wind, you're stuck. You got to turn on the motor. In their day, they, they didn't have motors. So they were just stuck. They had to row. They had to use, you know, people power to row themselves across to where they were going. But the idea is when we're led by the Holy Spirit, it's like the wind pushing that sail. That the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what we can't do in and of ourselves. So we have to decide as believers this. Are we going to go with the Spirit of God in our lives or are we going to fight against it? Are we going to give in and be led or are we going to fight against it and try to do our own? Paul says, hey, if you live according to your flesh, you're going to die. It's going to be death in a lot of different ways. Maybe not literal death, but it's going to be death. If you're trying to be the husband or wife that you're called to be in your own strength, it's going to be death to your marriage. You're going to mess it up. If you're trying to serve Jesus in, in the power of your flesh, it's going to be death. Believe me, I've tried it. It doesn't work. It's the worst. But when we are led by the Spirit, when we're surrendered to the Spirit, when we realize and, and are just living in that continual state of being poor in spirit, realizing our utter dependency upon Jesus for everything, the result of that is life because all the resources of our King Jesus are made available to us. And that is so glorious. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you, God, for this, these, the picture of these incredible principles that we see in this story, that the spirit of life in Christ sets us free from the law of sin and death. That we're not just given in Jesus freedom, but we're also given power. And when the Holy Spirit is in control of our lives, our flesh is defeated. And so, Lord, we want to go forth from here today as people who are surrendered to you. And with our head bowed and our eyes closed, 
I know that there are some of you here today that you have been caught up in that trap of thinking the answer is trying harder. You've been caught up in that place where I found myself too many times. And because of that, you're frustrated, you're defeated, you're worn out. The devil has been constantly whispering in your ear that you are a big loser, which is true. All of us are. We're all broken. But Jesus loves losers and sinners. Jesus loves to take broken things and fix them. And I just want to encourage you. In just a moment, we're going, to, we're going to sing a song together. And I just want to encourage you because there's a line in this song that speaks of the idea of surrender. And I want to encourage you, and just wherever you're at today, that you would take that thing, that area of your life that you've been just trying so hard and you've been failing miserably. And just say, Jesus, I surrender this to you today. Maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus before. I would encourage you today to say to Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Cry out to him. As we're singing this song, there's, gonna, there's people up front on our prayer team on both sides. Maybe you want some prayer. I want to encourage you to just get up and come and get with one of them. If you want to come and just kneel down in an act of humility before the Lord up front here on this padded carpet, feel free to do that. But let's just take this moment right now and bring our hearts before the Lord and rejoicing of the life we have in Him, but also to surrender those areas of our lives. Let's do that.